You're listening to an Ono Media Podcast. Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise and Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and happy Valentine's Week. I've got three stories for you today, and the first two are truly just heartbreaking. Let's get going. We'll start with the story out of Georgia that has a set of parents accusing the doctor of killing their newborn son during childbirth. This all happened last summer on July 10th when Trevion Taylor and Jessica Ross traveled to Southern Regional Medical Center with excitement that Jessica was about to deliver a little baby boy that they would name after his father. Jessica's water had broken, and the two rushed to the hospital, I'm sure, because Jessica was already considered a high-risk pregnancy. She'd been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, and the anxious couple just wanted to get to the hospital quickly. As the labor progressed for Jessica, it was clear that the baby might be in some trouble. He wasn't dropping into the birth canal, and this could have been happening because the baby's shoulder was stuck behind the mother's pubic bone essentially creating a roadblock that the baby could not get past. Well, after hours of labor, Jessica had asked her doctor, Tracy St. Julian, to perform a C-section. She claims the doctor denied the request and attempted various measures to move the baby past the mother's pubic bone. Now, most women, after laboring for some time, which actually could be hours, well, when they enter the pushing phase... It lasts typically 30 minutes to three hours. And according to the Journal of Midwifery and Women's Health, three hours is the top of that range. Well, Jessica had pushed for three hours while Dr. St. Juliana tried to manipulate the baby with her hands and forceps and then finally applied traction to the baby's head in order to pull the newborn through the vaginal canal. When none of these procedures worked, The doctor opted for the C-section, but by this time, no fetal heartbeat was being detected. Now, initially, when the baby was pulled from the mother, the staff took over and the parents were just left waiting to see what was happening with their child. Once they were told the baby was not living, they were wheeled to a viewing area where they could see their deceased baby bundled up in blankets, but they weren't allowed to hold the baby. Jessica and Trevion knew that the events that had occurred over the last few hours weren't okay. The hospital staff allegedly tried to calm the couple's anxiety by saying they could take care of the cremation for them, making the difficult experience easier by lightening their responsibilities. Well, the couple said no to that. And then the couple asked for an autopsy. And the hospital allegedly pushed back on the couple's request saying it wasn't needed. When the child's body was transferred to the funeral home for preparation for burial, the mortician knew something wasn't right, so they contacted the Clayton County Medical Examiner just to ask some questions. First on their mind, why wasn't the medical examiner's office already involved? The funeral home felt the baby had suffered, at a minimum, a fractured neck, and they just expected that an autopsy would have been performed. When the autopsy was performed... The examiner found that the baby had multiple skull and facial bone fractures and hemorrhaging on his neck and brain and around his spinal cord. And that's when the prosecutor's office became involved. 
Now, while the investigation was trudging forward over the last seven to eight months, the parents filed a lawsuit contending that their baby was essentially decapitated and that the hospital worked with the doctor to cover up the murder of their infant son. Now, according to NBC News, Premier Women's OBGYN, okay, that's Dr. St. Juliana's practice, well, they did not reply to requests for comment when the lawsuit was filed. And Southern Regional Medical Center said in a statement that it denies the allegations of wrongdoing and that this unfortunate infant death occurred in utero prior to the delivery and decapitation. So what they're claiming is the baby died in Jessica's stomach before the doctor even started to manipulate. Well, here's my question. I see them admitting to the decapitation in that statement but they didn't tell the parents about the decapitation. So they're admitting that they know now in the statement, but when the whole thing was going down, they didn't bother to tell the parents. Well, the hospital also said in the statement, it voluntarily reported the death to the Clayton County Medical Examiner's Office and that it is, quote, cooperating with all investigations. Now, Jessica and Trevian's lawsuit contends that it is just not correct They say that without the funeral home, the medical examiner's office would not be involved and other steps wouldn't have been taken. Now, the lawsuit, it also says that the couple were discouraged from getting an autopsy by both Dr. St. Juliana and the hospital staff. Now, before I tell you the rest of the story, because there's more and about the update that I'm going to give you, I just can't believe that this hospital staff felt it was all right to not let a couple hold their infant child after the child had died. Now, a trauma specialist with Pepperdine University said that it is the rite of passage for a mother to hold her child and that robbing mothers of that opportunity after the child's death can cause intense and prolonged grief. That expert, well, she also said that the central nervous system interaction between a mother and a child is necessary for the mother's healing, regardless of whether the child survived the birth. Now, I would say this is why they encourage mothers that are adopting out the baby that they carried and delivered. They encourage them to hold that child and nurture that child for possibly a few hours before the child is turned over to their new loving and happily awaiting parents. Now, I know I've told you listeners before that my youngest child, Marley, was delivered at 28 weeks gestational, and she only weighed two and a half pounds. That was 24 years ago. Back then, I wasn't allowed to hold Marley until she was four weeks old. Okay, the thought was that we didn't want to stimulate her. We wanted that stimulation to be the least amount possible in order for her body to heal and grow. And then the body could experience touching and it wouldn't be so traumatic. Okay. I know they do it different now. I'm just telling you how it was back then. But I tell you that because her birth changed me. I would have healed faster. And I think she would have also If we, mother and daughter, would have been able to share that connection that the experts say is so necessary. And you guys, poor Jessica. I'm just horrified about the staff not letting her hold her child. My heart's just aching for her. And I didn't even have near the nightmarish experience she had. Okay, and here's the part I haven't told you yet, because this story actually gets worse. All right, back up. Their baby dies. They don't get to hold him. 
They are told a free autopsy isn't available or needed. The funeral home is letting them know that the baby was decapitated, not the hospital. So before they filed the lawsuit, they contracted someone to do an autopsy. His name is Dr. Jackson Gates, and they paid him $2,500 to perform the examination. Okay, I think we can all agree in this time of grief, a lot of us would have done this. Well, according to law and crime, Dr. Gates conducted the private autopsy And then he put up videos of the graphic examination on his Instagram. After Jessica and Trevion were made aware that these videos had been posted on social media, Dr. Gates took them down. Only to then, a few days later, post two more videos detailing the autopsy. When you guys see the pictures of Jessica looking distraught and overwhelmed, you can see and understand how genuine those feelings are for her. All right, here's the update. It was announced last week that the Clayton County Medical Examiner's Office has ruled the death of Jessica and Trevion's baby as a homicide. The report stated that the baby suffered a fractured dislocation with complete transsection of the upper cervical C1 and C2 area. All right, in basically non-medical terms, the spinal cord was broken in half. Now, criminal charges have not been filed against the doctor or the hospital, and I can't even guarantee they will be filed. The findings from the medical examiner's office only determine the baby was harmed to the point of death. It does not indicate a crime was committed. It only indicates actions caused the death. Okay, I know that seems so backwards, but that's how it works. It will be up to the prosecutors now to determine that they have enough evidence to charge either the hospital staff or the doctor or both with criminal charges. Well, in a news conference last week, Trevion told reporters that the lawsuit is about just wanting justice for their son. Now, the damages being requested in the lawsuit have not been revealed at this time, and both the hospital and the doctor's office are not giving comment. I'll just be watching to see if charges are filed, and I'll let you know when I know. And please, mothers out there, I didn't do a very good job of advocating for myself three decades ago when I was giving birth to very sick babies. But you guys trust your gut. Trust those feelings. You know what's best for your precious little ones. And now to Macomb, Michigan, where a verdict has been handed down in the murder of Terry Adams, a perfect little six-year-old boy who battled CHARGE syndrome. All right, so let's start here, because the lives of the three families involved are all intertwined, and they're full of anger, and quite honestly, it seems full of deceit. Okay, Gary Adams and Ashlyn Bethel had a rocky relationship, as best that I can tell. I saw social media accusations about cheating and breaking up and then reconnecting, even if those are true. It is social media, so who knows what's going on. But from their tumultuous relationship, two beautiful children were born. In 2015, Terry Adams, an adorable little boy that brought lots of love, but lots of challenges, well, he was born. And then in 2020, a beautiful little girl named Emmeline was born. So little Terry, he had CHARGE syndrome, 
that's a genetic disorder that can bring on a host of difficulties. Some children diagnosed with CHARGE syndrome experience heart defects, blindness or malformations of the eye, breathing difficulties since the air passageways can be malformed, restricted mental and physical growth, a possibility of urinary abnormalities, and maybe even deafness. Now, not all children diagnosed with CHARGE syndrome have all those symptoms, but the more symptoms the child has, the more doctors the child would have to interact with because the symptoms deal with all different parts of the body. For little Terry, his symptoms included being blind in one eye, being nonverbal, along with other delays, and he was required to be nourished by a feeding tube. I could only imagine this would stretch a mother and a father, but I would also hope the love of such a sweet little boy could ease the burdens. But in this case, eventually, maybe it was the weight of caring for a special needs child. Maybe it was just two people who couldn't get along and be loyal to each other. But Gary and Ashlyn, they called it quits. And Ashlyn introduced a new man into her life. Ashlyn works for the local Domino's, which is owned by the grandparents of Hunter Locke Hughes. And when Ashlyn and Hunter began their relationship, it seems the relationship between the father of Ashlyn's two children wasn't quite over. Also adding to the moneyness of the new relationship is that Hunter is young. As far as I can tell, he was about 19 years old when the two began a more serious relationship. Now, I'm not making any excuses here. I'm just laying out there that here's a young man who has started dating a woman with two children, one of which is requiring tremendous care and love, and he's only 19 years old. Well, on the night of December 28th of 2021, Ashlyn had to work at the Domino's, and Hunter, well, he just returned from his day of work. They did that complicated switch off that so many young families have to do. As Ashlyn left for work, she left the two children with Hunter. Well, Terry became upset and he began vomiting. Again, through my digging, this didn't seem that abnormal for Terry. His genetic defect has left him with digestive issues, but he still needs cared for. So Hunter takes over and begins getting the two children ready for bed. Now, these next details don't seem to be disputed. While Terry was throwing up, he got some of the throw up on himself. So Hunter undressed the six-year-old and placed him in a tub full of water. For the next six minutes, Hunter talks to Ashlyn on the phone. And by his own admission, he doesn't really pay attention to either child. Now, here's where the details change. At first, Hunter claimed that he returned to the bathroom and found Terry lying sideways in the tub underwater. Hunter claimed he pulled him out of the tub and laid him on a towel. Then he called Ashlyn. Then he called 911. As he was speaking to 911, he's attempting life-saving measures on Terry. During the call, he says multiple times, come on, Bubba, come on, Bubba, calling little Terry by his nickname. When first responders arrive, they found Terry on the bathroom floor. They find the tub has water and feces in it, and they take over the life-saving measures. Well, Okay, Hunter, after hanging up with 911 and while first responders are attempting to revive Terry, Hunter called Ashlyn back and she's screaming into the phone, what happened? What happened? I don't understand. And all Hunter says back is, I don't know. 
At some point, Hunter tries to drain the tub of the water and of the diarrhea, but police tell him to stop the draining. And then, after about an hour, the little boy is pronounced dead. And this scene is chaotic. At some point, Ashlyn returns to the home. There's cops walking everywhere. You have a little baby that's still, like, under two. She's, Emmeline, she's still wandering around. And this is the point when the details start to get really muddy again. Hunter had told first responders that he had been living with Ashlyn for two to three months and that they had been dating for about a year. But Ashlyn says that he was just a fill-in babysitter since one of the family members couldn't help her that night. And then, over the next few days, Hunter is interviewed three times by detectives. And all three interviews have slightly different stories. The first interview matched pretty closely with what he told first responders, that Terry was upset, he threw up, Hunter placed him in the tub, he made the phone call that lasted six minutes, and in that time, something happened to Terry, and he drowned. But in the second interview and the third interview, Hunter slowly admits that he held Terry underwater. He claimed that he was trying to wash all of the soap off of the little boy, and in order to do so, he held his body underwater, but that he kept his head propped up above the the water line. And then, as detectives keep pushing, Hunter admits it was possible that in the washing that he might have banged Terry's head against the bottom of the tub. Hunter then told detectives that after being under the water, that Terry sat up on his own accord and that his breathing was a little more shallow than it usually was. And he said that's when he pulled him from the tub and placed him on the towel. Now, detectives pushed back in that interview saying that Hunter's explanation of events didn't match the science of drownings. So you're probably saying, did they do an autopsy? Of course. And when those findings finally came back, it wasn't clear about the cause of the drowning, but it was clear that this little boy had suffered some sort of abuse. The report showed that little Terry had 30 bruises on his body and nearly 20 of those bruises, well, they were on his head. A brain bleed was also discovered during the autopsy. Terry also had two contusions, one on each side of the back of his shoulders and then a contusion on his lower back and one on the upper part of his bottom. Now the autopsy found that Terry did die from drowning but that the manner of death was indeterminate, which means it could have been accidental. It could have been forced. Now, through all of this, these interviews, the waiting on the reports, the gathering of information, well, a funeral service was held for little Terry. But because of the hostilities between Gary's and Ashland's families, the funeral home agreed to have two separate services and visitation hours, And those hostilities weren't kept private. On social media, Gary's family shared snippets of the services for Terry and then lamented that warnings hadn't been heeded and that abuse allegations had already surfaced before Terry's death. And then the posts complained that Ashlyn had allowed Hunter and his family to attend the services that were held for her side of the family. So do you get that? They're so upset that the man who was in charge of Terry when he died is now at his funeral. Okay, well, let's break it down. What are the previous abuse claims? And is there merit? Well, it does seem so. Records show that the family of Gary Adams 
had contacted Child Protective Services several times. And despite the agency looking into the claims, the children were never removed from the home. Now, one reason cited for why Terry wasn't removed was that the child was nonverbal. And so he couldn't explain how he got a black eye or other bruises. Well, armed with that information, the information about the abuse and with the information from the autopsy and the slight admissions by Hunter during the interrogation interviews, well, Hunter was eventually arrested and charged with first-degree homicide and first-degree child abuse. This all happened four months after Terry's death. Now, Hunter was held in jail on a million-dollar bond until he faced a jury last month for the homicide charge. During the trial, Hunter's attorney claimed that Hunter was placed in a difficult situation, one in which he wasn't prepared to handle. The defense also argued that when Hunter left to make that six-minute phone call with Ashlyn, that Terry vomited, and that was what actually killed the little boy. Now, the prosecution disagreed, and they argued that the boy had been held down prior to the six-minute phone call, that the event of holding the boy underwater actually happened before he talked on the phone for six minutes to Ashlyn. They rationalized that since first responders had trouble opening Terry's jaw, that the boy had been dead for several minutes, which caused his body to basically lock up. Now, the seven-day trial was filled with back and forth about accidental versus intentional drownings. Expert witnesses declared both could have happened, and detectives' tactics were also called into question. Arguments about how they strong-armed Hunter and also how they spoke to him without reading his rights occurred. And could they have strong-armed him? Possibly. But the judge ultimately found that the three interviews could be played in court. Well, when all was said and done, it took jurors nearly 11 hours to find Hunter guilty of a lesser charge of involuntary manslaughter and also first-degree child abuse. He was acquitted of the first-degree murder charge. He will be sentenced on March 13th, and he could face up to 15 years behind bars for the death of little Terry. Now, his attorney said, they will be appealing the conviction. Last week, Terry's aunt, Shannon Grabowski, spoke on behalf of the family saying they were grateful for the guilty verdict. She said they wanted the first-degree murder conviction, but that they were happy that Hunter could potentially serve a long sentence. She then said she hoped Hunter would have to endure some of the things in prison that Terry had to endure in his life. Okay, Gary Adams, remember... That's Terry's dad. Well, the family said he plans to now try to get legal custody of Emma Lynn. So what's up with Ashlyn? Well, much to the family's dismay, no charges have been brought against her. And it doesn't seem for now that any charges will be brought. And if you're asking, yes, she does seem to still be working at Domino's because it's listed as her place of employment on her active social media. I tell you that because, remember, Hunter's grandparents own the pizza restaurant. So if she is still working at the restaurant, she's obviously still involved with Hunter's family. That is, remember, if her social media is accurate. Now, in his obituary, the family described Terry as a young boy who had overcome many obstacles in his life, including learning how to walk. 
They wrote that he loved his iPad and that he would try to learn new things daily. Sometimes I bring you listeners these stories and even though they have a conclusion, it feels so undone. I truly hope that the life for Emmalyn is more secure than the one that was provided for her older brother. And let's finish with this story out of Tennessee, where a man awoke to his wife and adult daughter trying to kill him. At least that's his story. So here's what went down. Last week, 62-year-old Pam Davis and 29-year-old Kelly Davis allegedly attacked their husband and father while he was sleeping. He told authorities that the night before the early morning attack, that he had told his wife that he wanted a divorce. He said he was awakened later when his daughter hit him with a frying pan twice and then held him at knife point while kneeling atop him in the bed. The man also claimed that during the attack, his wife had wrapped a belt around his neck and tried to strangle him. He told authorities he, quote, got a couple of blows from the frying pan before he wrestled the knife out of his daughter's hand and ran to the neighbors for help. Now, when the man showed up at the neighbor's house, he was covered in blood and only wearing underwear. And the neighbor, well, he called 911. Video from police body cam footage shows the man lying in his blue underwear on the neighbor's porch when the deputies arrived. Law enforcement asked the man, are you okay? He responded by saying, I've had better days. When first responders entered the man's home, they saw two women in the living room with superficial knife injuries. Okay, I'm going to try to kind of explain this to you because I've watched the video. The women are both sitting on the floor and there is some blood, but the knife injuries aren't deep and I'm not sure why they don't stand up. (laughs) I'm a little confused. There's nothing wrong with their legs. They can walk. Okay, I'm just telling you what I saw and it's just kind of weird. Now, their daughter, Kelly, during the video, she's crying the whole time. It never kind, it never lets up. She just keeps crying. And she's saying that it all started at 11 p.m. the night before. And then she told the cops her father had done this kind of thing before. Okay, I'm not sure what that means, but I'm going to guess. She means he said that he's asked for a divorce before and that because of that, violence ensued. I'm just guessing here because she's crying and she doesn't really give an explanation. All right, well, in the body cam footage, the cop leaves the two women there. He is getting them medical attention. He's asking for more help in assessing their wounds, but he's not incredibly worried about it. He's more thinking, hey, we need to get some gauze and maybe bandage these women up. And the man? Well, he suffered two huge gashes to his head. And after all was said and done, the two women were arrested and charged with attempted murder. I'll let you know if I find out anything more about this, if prosecutors go ahead and carry the charges forward. Who knows? Anything could happen in this case. Well, that's your Monday episode of Rise and Crime. Again, happy Valentine's Day. However you choose to celebrate, I hope it's a good week. I'm watching the trial of Harmony Montgomery, and when that concludes, I'll bring you the update. It could be as soon as our next episode. And of course, I'm still watching the Jennifer Dulos case. You guys, thanks for joining Ono Media and Rise and Crime. If you love what you're hearing, 
five-star reviews are free and they help the podcast grow. So please give Rise and Crime a follow or a like, and you can tell a friend and subscribe while you're at it. Join me again on Thursday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules, and keep safe out there.